Well, good morning, Whitewater. It's good to see you. My name is Micah, part of the team here, and I'm glad that you're here or uh, tuning in. If you're new today, God bless you. You picked a great day to check out Whitewater. We're digging into some heavy stuff, but as uh, John said last week, you know, we invite you to judge us and see how well we live up to the stuff that we're talking about, all right? Now, over the summer, when David asked me to preach, I said, absolutely, anything you need. He said, great, I want you to preach two days before the election, and I want you to talk about politics. <laughs> awesome. We're actually three weeks into this Talking Points series, and uh, it's got some material we borrowed from Andy Stanley, but it's going really well. Uh, if you've missed the first two weeks, I really recommend you check them out, all right? David said up front that his goal was to offend everybody, but uh, the goal isn't really to offend for the sake of being offensive. It's to poke just a little bit at the biggest idol in conservative American Christianity, the idol of political power. But let's start with something easy, all right? Tell me if you've noticed this. When we see other people's behavior, we tend to assume that it's an issue of character. They're, let me say this. When we see their bad behavior, we tend to assume that it's an issue of character. But when we look at our own bad behavior, we want to talk about circumstances. So here's how this works. When you wake up on a Sunday, right, and you decide, I got to get out of this house, I'm going to Whitewater, right? So you get dressed, you get the kids dressed, you pile everybody in the minivan, you're heading west on I-74, right? And then somebody cuts you off in traffic. What is your assumption about that person? They're a bad driver, right? They're reckless, they're irresponsible, they're probably really entitled, they're just a jerk and a terrible driver. But when you cut somebody off in traffic, or when I cut somebody off in traffic, that's not at all what occurs to me. I think, well, I mean, I was running late because the kids moved my keys and I had to stop and get gas, and then somebody else cut me off, right? When it's somebody else, we want to talk, we just tend to believe that it's, it's their character. When it's us, no, I got, there's reasons why it happened the way that it did. But, you know, if it's somebody else, they're just a failure as a human being. So this has been observed so often and so consistently that psychologists actually give it a name. It's called the fundamental attribution error. And you can actually Google that. The fundamental attribution error is a, a cognitive bias that makes smart people act in not so smart ways. We attribute other people's bad behavior to their character, but we attribute our own bad behavior to circumstances and environment. When it comes to other people, it's who they are as a person, but when it's us, we want some nuance, right? Now, not only do we do this for individuals, we do this for groups of people. If you've walked the political arena for a long time, you've noticed that politics is no longer a question of policy, right? Like, oh, well, I think this is the, pro the best set of policies and legislation to solve the particular problem. Like, that's not it. Modern American politics is all about tribe. There's a blue tribe on the left, there's a red tribe on the right, and each tribe may have minor differences among itself, right? but it is 100% united in its opposition to the other tribe. So I root for the Colts, and I know a lot of you root for the Bengals, but we are all unified in our hatred of the Steelers and the Patriots. Can I get an amen? All right. So we interpret everything through the lens of tribe, things that we would absolutely condemn in the other guy, right? They're, that's okay if it's our guy. Or if, if it's no big deal if our guy does this thing, but we would skewer our opponents for doing that. So here's how that shakes out in politics, right? Those corrupt Democrats, they're just corrupt. You know why that way? It's because they're corrupt. They're all corrupt, 
right? That's their character. I've done extensive research. Every Democrat is corrupt. That's how it works, right? Or those heartless Republicans, right? You know why they vote that way? It's because they're heartless. They're just heartless. I've met every single Republican. I can tell you definitively, they're all heartless. That's just how it is, right? No, you're corrupt. No, you're heartless. You're corrupt. And this is what passes for politics in America today. Now, in a normal world, in a sane world, mature, intelligent, thoughtful people would never fall for this, right? But there's a reason that pundits and politicians on both sides have led us down this path. It's because it works. Pundits and politicians know that the easiest way to control people is to divide them into groups and get them fighting against each other. Do you know, I don't know, I don't know if you know this, do you know what the wicked people on the other side are doing? It's terrible. It's terrible. And if Jesus was walking around here today, he would 100% agree with me that those people are the worst, not like us, right? But what have we been saying for the past couple weeks? Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have a preference for who gets voted in or voted out. Jesus said, give to Caesar what you owe to Caesar. And in a a, uh, representative democracy or a republic... What you owe is taxes and a vote. So I don't think that you have to vote red or vote blue, but I think everybody should vote as a matter of duty. But it's hard, at least for some of us, to keep that sand in the sandbox, right? So here's the truth about me, Micah, me personally. Politics is dangerous for me. Every evil and wicked thing in my heart, Micah's heart, every evil and wicked thing in my heart comes alive when I start arguing about politics. All of the sins that I personally am most susceptible to, of arrogance, of pride, of looking down on other people, all that stuff just comes to the surface when I get into politics. Like, I'm a competitive guy, and whatever it is, I want to compete, right? And I usually can keep the reins on, but sometimes when I'm talking politics, I turn into Conan the Barbarian. You guys remember the 80s film Conan with Schwarzenegger in it, right? He says, what is best in life? And Conan says, You have to imagine Arnold. My Arnold voice isn't great, but he says, to crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentation of the women. Right? (laughs) See, politics is a competitive sport. It's a spectator sport, and you don't want your team to win by a little. You want to win by a lot, right? Run up the score. Crush your enemies and see them driven before you. But that's not how a follower of Jesus should act. When I was a teenager, I had a, uh, I had a close friend of mine die. And I was in a dark place for a good while. And what started out as a search for answers eventually led me to getting really serious about my Christian faith. And at first, that was really good, right? I needed structure. I needed confidence. I needed some rules to follow. But pretty quickly, what happened is uh, I became focused on being a good religious Christian instead of focusing on following Jesus. On the outside, I did the things that good religious Christians do, but I didn't really have much of a relationship with Jesus. The more I called myself a Christian, the more I became very moral, very uptight, very much a jerk. The more I talked about Jesus... This is a tragedy. The more I talked about Jesus, the less I looked like him. Because what did Jesus say? 
Two great commandments. Love God with everything that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. I tended to skip those, right? Instead, I focused on the part where Jesus said, hey, people have rejected me and they're gonna reject you. And so every time I experienced any kind of rejection, I just thought it was because I was being a good Christian. It took me a while to realize that people weren't rejecting me for my faith. They were rejecting me because I was a jerk. And I'm very concerned that in our desire to take back this country for Jesus, the church has ended up not looking very much like Jesus. I'm concerned that people will reject our message, not because they don't want Jesus, but because we act like a bunch of jerks. See, Jesus had two commandments, right? But in politics, there's only one. The greatest commandment of politics is this, win. Win. That's it, just win. If you win, everything is excusable. And if you don't win, nothing is. Did you lie, cheat, steal? Only thing that matters is if you win. Did you misrepresent people? Did you set up groups of people and blame all your problems on them? Did you drive a wedge between people and get them fighting each other? Only thing that matters is if you win. Now, last week, John talked about putting our faith filter ahead of our politics filter. You guys remember that? Our faith filter above our politics filter. In this hand, I've got love God and love others. And in this hand, I've got win. Now, ideally, we'd all love it if we could get both of those things, right? If we had both of them. But if you only get to have one or the other, which one are you going to choose? Ideally, we like both, but if you're only going to get one or the other, which one do you go after? See, I want to be clear about this. Anything that we put in front of God or above God, that thing is idolatry. An idol might, be ba- might not be very bad on its own, but when we put our trust in that thing, when we put our faith in that, then it becomes idolatrous. If you've been around for a while, you've heard me say this, right? I believe that we, we, patriotic American, theologically conservative Christians have a relationship with political power that borders on and in some cases crosses the line into idolatry. We have made an idol out of political success. Now, this is about to get painful, so stay with me. I have been at this church for almost seven years. When this building was built, my kids and I wrote prayers in Sharpie on the concrete that is underneath this stage. All right? I've preached here, I've baptized here, I've grilled hot dogs here, I've checked your kids into Harbor Town. Like, I have served with you and alongside you for the last seven years. And that goes both ways. You have raised my kids. You have served alongside of me. You've encouraged me when I've been down. You have been shoulder to shoulder with me. I want you to hear this. I love this church. I love you. I love you. And I'm friends with a lot of you on Facebook. There is nothing as jarring for me, frankly, nothing that depresses me quite as much as when when I see people that I know as good, faithful, loving, godly people lose their minds on Facebook. People that would never say an unkind word will just share horrible poison about other people just as soon as we start talking politics. Look, you know that Joe Biden and Donald Trump are both made in the image of God, right? Like, you know that both Republicans and Democrats are fearfully and wonderfully made. 
You know that Jesus Christ bled and died on a cross at Calvary for both the red tribe and the blue tribe. For God so loved the whole world that he gave his son, his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Why are we condemning the ones God sent his son to save? Now don't get me wrong, there is going to be a final judgment. But it's not going to be you and me who sits on that seat. And if you have ever complained that America needs to get serious about the Bible. Hey, we want to get the Bible in the public square. If that's ever been a thing that you've complained about, how about we start with the part where Jesus says, love your enemies. Now, love God and love people when? Talking down to people, demonizing people, dropping the mic might be a great way to win. But whose kingdom are you building? I'd argue that when you look at history, the church is most effective when it stays true to its calling. And it's most irrelevant when it chases after political power. I've got a video I want you to watch. All right? It's not about politics exactly. It's not precisely about the red tribe and the blue tribe. All right, Let the reader understand. Give this a watch. Let's just say this is you. You're the big red person. All these people around you are just the people that you come in contact with. Some are people that you're friends with. Some are just, you know, the, the checkout person at the grocery store. Everyone has a moral circle. And all that means is that the people that are most central to you there are going to get your most love and they're the people that you're going to be nicest towards. Okay, how many of you here have waited tables? So you guys know what misery that is. I have waited tables also. Imagine a friend, a family member, somebody you really care about is gonna start waiting tables. They go through the whole training process. You get a group of people together. You go, you sit in their section. You're all excited first night. And they come over and they are just sweating bullets. Right? What do you say to them? Oh, don't, don't worry about us. Don't worry about us. Don't even worry about us. We don't even need drinks. I don't even like water. It's fine. We're fine. <laughs> I'm gonna like this. An hour later, they come over and take your order. You ordered steak in front of you as cod. It's great. You love cod. Cod's terrific. We're going to eat this. This is going to be great. And then what do you do at the, over, at the end of the night? You over-tip them, don't you? You over-tip them. Now, imagine that same scenario, and you have no idea who this server is. And they come, and you know what? You ordered Coke Zero, and this tastes like Diet Coke. So you stop making eye contact with these people. You start to do that mental math of the tip going down, down, down. I'm not going to even look at this person. You know, this is, this is ridiculous. We were paying for a good time. What is this? Two different types of behavior from us for two different people. One is your mom. One is your friend. One is your brother. The other one isn't. But the other one's somebody's mom. The other one's somebody's friend. The other one's somebody's brother. Why do we justify two different types of behavior for people that we come in contact with? We show kindness to our kind, meaning the people that are inside that circle are generally going to be people that you think are your kind. Ethnicity, background, financial status, age, orientation, family member, skill set, you name it, these are the people that I am going to give my most love to. 
Just imagine with me. How different would your world be if you just expanded your moral circle? What if all of a sudden the people in your church were known for treating other people in their society like family? What would that do to you? What would that do to your church? What would that do to your life and your heart? We show kindness to our kind. Who's your kind? Who's your tribe? Friends, it's not the people who vote like you. That may have been true for you at one point, but if you follow Jesus, it's no longer true. You have been bought with a price. You've been adopted into a new family. Why do we treat everybody, everybody like family? Because they are. Now, I know this is hard. It's hard for me, right? I'm preaching to myself. It's very difficult. It's so difficult, most of us think we've already done it. And many of us aren't willing to do this. Some of you, I'm not sure you can do this. But if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to put his kingdom first above every earthly one. You're going to have to put your faith filter ahead of your political filter, right? Faith has to be first. Everything else is a distant second. See, when we filter Jesus to fit a political platform, we rob the world, not just our communities and our nation, we rob the world of the message that changed the world. We cannot be first and foremost party people, right? I ain't talking about your college years here. I'm talking about political parties, right? We cannot be party people. We have to be kingdom people. If you tell me you're voting for the lesser of two evils, fine, all right? But be willing to call out the evil that you're voting for. Call it for what it is. Don't gloss over it because they're in the right tribe. If you see the Democratic Party as the lesser of two evils, be willing to say what does not line up with the kingdom of God. If you see the Republican Party as the lesser of two evils, be willing to say what does not line up with the kingdom of God. Now, is this a big deal? It's a really big deal. Early Christians reshaped the world because of this. They refused unconditional loyalty to the emperors, even the good ones, right? And in doing so, they moved the moral and ethical needle for the Roman Empire and everything that came after it. And do you know how they did it? They did it through culturally disruptive unity. In a society that was built around distinction and division, the church was unique. In his letter to the church in Galatia, Paul says this. He says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. You are all one family. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, Male, female, Republican, Democrat, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul didn't mean that we would lose our ethnicity, that we would lose our social status, that we would lose our gender, right? He meant that in the kingdom, the old way of dividing things, the old way of dividing people, that would cease to function. That we would not be divided by these things anymore. The Roman society was built on these distinctions. It was built on these divisions. But inside the church, it would cease to work that way. It was disturbing, it was unsettling. It was actually dangerous for the empire. That's why the empire struck back, right? That's why the empire decided to impose sanctions on Christians to force Christians to declare that Caesar was Lord. 
Now, I know it's impossible for us to fully understand what this was like. It's so different from our experience. But classes of people, entire classes of people, whose circles rarely overlapped, and only when it was completely unavoidable, they came together voluntarily and regularly to worship the crucified God. And this was baffling to the Romans. It was baffling to the people of the empire. Greco-Roman philosophers wrote books, a lot of books, about how these distinctions and these separations and these divisions were totally baked in. They're hardwired, right? What the Christians were doing seemed profoundly unnatural. Why would they do this? Because the message of Jesus was so clear. I've come to establish a new kind of kingdom and everybody is invited to participate. We cannot imagine how countercultural, how disturbing, how dangerous the Apostle Paul's words were. See, today, when we hear, when you're here, your family, right? That's not countercultural. That's the slogan for Olive Garden, all right? When you're here, your family. But in the first and second century, that, that phrase was not pleasant. It sounded dangerous. Historically, we know that Peter and Paul, the apostles, were executed in Rome by Rome around 65 AD, all right? And Christians were, perse- were being persecuted by Rome on and off for the next 50 years. And when I say persecuted, hear me on this, all right? I love you. Hear me on this. When I say persecuted, I do not mean that they were forced to wear masks and worship outside, okay? When I say persecuted, I mean that they were dipped in oil, impaled, and then set on fire to provide ambient lighting for dinner parties. That is not an exaggeration. All throughout, though, Christianity continued to, to spread like crazy. Crazy. So less than 50 years after the, the, uh, cruci- the, after 50 years after the execution of Peter and Paul, which less than 80 years after the uh, execution of Jesus Christ himself, Christianity has reached every corner of the Roman Empire. And we have historical letters from a Roman leader at that time who's trying to figure out what to do with these Christians, right? His name was Pliny the Younger, not to be confused with Pliny the Elder, okay, that was his uncle, uh, and Pliny wrote hundreds of letters to everybody. There's a, they're a treasure trove for historians because they describe the area that he was responsible for and how he governed. They describe the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD, which is what covered Pompeii. And in one letter, he describes a very strange group of people called Christians. So while Christianity has been spreading, the edges of the Roman Empire were beginning to fray. Romans start asking the question, why aren't the gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon why aren't they supporting us the way they used to? Well, it's because they're angry. Well, why are the gods angry? Well, it's because they're not being sacrificed to the way they used to be sacrificed to. Well, who's not sacrificing to the gods? It's these Christians. So the emperor sends out an edict that we have to stop the spread of Christianity, right? Because the gods are angry. You've got to round them up and you've got to force them to sacrifice to the gods and acknowledge the emperor, right? The Caesar. They don't have to quit believing their thing. They can keep believing their thing, right? They can add their God to the pantheon. It's fine. But they've got to at least acknowledge that the emperor is Lord. They've got to swear their ultimate allegiance to the Caesar. So our buddy Pliny says, I've got to figure out what makes these Christians so dangerous. So he does some digging, right? He sends some men in pretending to be Christians to join churches. He arrests and, and tortures church leaders. And he figures out the problem, right? And he writes it in a letter to the emperor. He says, these people are honoring you, Caesar, but they say their highest allegiance is to a crucified rabbi. So they're traitors, basically, because they're not patriotic. 
He says in his letters that he gave Christians three chances to declare their innocence. And all you have to do to declare your innocence, he said, this will prove that you're not a Christian if you say Caesar is Lord. That's it. You want to follow Yahweh, Jehovah, fine, whatever, but Caesar is Lord, right? Three chances to say you're innocent, and if you don't do that, he kills you. So he's looking for the phrase, we have no king but Caesar, right? He's roughing them up, he's interrogating them, he's waterboarding them, trying to understand what makes them tick. And here's what he discovered. Less than 50 years after Peter and Paul were executed in Rome, here's what he writes. He said, they, these Christians, they were accustomed to meeting on a fixed day before dawn and singing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. How many people do you think are showing up to church if we meet at 5.30 in the morning? Right? And, it goes on, and they bind themselves by oath, not to some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, adultery, not to falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called on to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary, innocent food. Note that there's no whitewater crossing Christian church that you can like send people into, right? These are basically small groups. They pray, they sing, they eat, they hold each other accountable. These are just these little missional communities that are popping up all over the place. Now this is prior to the printing press, all right? These people aren't reading Bibles because for the most part they're too poor to pay someone to copy the scrolls of the New Testament for them. All the theology they know is what they sing. And they get together and conspire but they don't conspire to commit crime together. Instead, they conspire to not do things that they think are immoral. And then they all eat together. You've been hearing John talk about like reaching across the dinner table, right? Reaching people through the dinner table. He didn't make that up. That's a New Testament thing. That's what the early church did. But that's it. That's all these radicals were doing. Pliny cannot buy this, right? There's got to be something else. There's something else going on. He says, accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves that were called deaconesses, deaconesses, but I discovered nothing else except depraved, super, uh, depraved excessive superstition. All right, do, do with this what you will, but the only church leaders Pliny can get his hands on are slaves and their women. I don't know what you think when you hear the word deaconesses, but in the original language, the word used here is ministra. All right? which, of course, is Latin for the person who runs the knitting circle and brings casseroles. Right? I report, you decide. You know why Pliny says the Christians are superstitious? Because Christianity wasn't considered a religion because it didn't acknowledge the Roman pantheon. Right? If you're Roman, you're like, well, religion has to do with Jupiter and Minerva and Mars, right? not dead carpenters. The Romans actually called the Christians atheists. Because they claimed, the Christians claimed that the pantheon, the gods of the pantheon, weren't even real. They're atheists. They don't believe in the gods. In pagan religions, there is no morality or ethics related to pagan worship. There's civil law to keep people in line, right? But when it comes to the gods, the gods don't care how you treat people. The gods don't care how you treat your wife. The gods don't care how you treat your kids. The gods don't care how you treat your community. The gods don't care, right? They just want their sacrifice. You're trying to bribe the gods. And suddenly, there's this group, and they feel that somehow their worship includes a moral component and an ethical component as they feel accountable to God. They feel accountable to God for how they treat each other, for how they treat those who aren't in their community, for how they treat their community. They treat each other 
like family. Imagine. Imagine what would happen in our country. Imagine what would happen in our country if every week Christians gathered in circles and made an oath to each other. This week I'm not going to defraud anybody financially, right? I'm not going to take any object or credit or idea that's not mine. This week I'm going to be faithful once again to my husband or wife. This week I'm not going to let anybody down. I'm going to follow through on what I promised. Imagine such a world. You've got to think Pliny is like, that's it? Right? That's all you got? See, this made no sense. It was so countercultural in a culture that worshipped strength, in a culture that worshipped winning, in a culture that worshipped conquest and victory. The ruling class found Christianity to be pathetic, pitiful. It's ridiculous. Right? They're worshipping a crucified rabbi. What's that? And from their perspective, the entire thing was just weird and appalling. But many, many, many people found the upside-down kingdom of Jesus appealing. See, Christians refuse to abandon the sick because they no longer fear death. Christians no longer abandon babies because everybody's made in the image of God. It's common at that time. If you had a baby and you couldn't care for it or you didn't have the resources or you just weren't interested, right? You could take this baby to the edge of the village or the edge of the uh, forest and just leave them there right? And maybe they'd be, get picked up by slavers who'd raise them, or maybe nature would just take its course. But either way, right, nobody looks at you weird if you do that. And the Christians said, no, we're going to bring these children into our homes. We're going to raise them as if they're our own children. We're going to raise them like our family. Who are these people? They, raised the, they extended dignity to their slaves and their servants and the people who weren't in their class. Who are these people? They're our people. They're our people. See, this was unheard of. Placed slave and master and commoner and nobleman all on the same footing before God, equal before God. The kingdom of God, as described by Jesus, struck the ancients as appalling, but eventually appealing. And in time, it became contagious. And it swept through the empire like an airborne disease. And against all odds, what was called a Nazarene sect in the book of Acts, because they worshipped a crucified rabbi from Nazareth, Nazareth, with no holding, no territory, no military, no authority, no political power, no political standing, who told his followers to love their enemies. That group didn't just survive, it thrived. It shaped Western civilization, and we, every single Jesus follower here today, all of us are a part of that movement. And this is why we dare not, this is why we dare not be divided over party lines knowing that one day those parties will be over. Now, I understand, I absolutely understand, that there are some very important issues at stake in this and in every election. And it's easy to be divided over these issues that a lot of people in our church are very passionate about. And I understand it may be impossible for you, impossible for you to understand how a Jesus follower could possibly have a different view on this specific issue than you have like how can you call yourself a christian and be for this right or how can you call yourself a christian and be against this how do you call yourself a christian and not see that or how do you call yourself a christian and not understand that you may never understand why other christians don't see political issues and social issues the way that you see them you may never understand how they can be against what you're for 
and for what you're against. So when you go to vote, vote your conscience, absolutely, all right? When you go to vote, don't vote trying to make a bunch of people happy. Vote your conscience. But in the meantime, let's do what the early church did. Let's fulfill the law of Christ. Let's carry each other's burdens. Let's expand our moral circles, right? Let's treat everybody like family. And when we do that, something happens, something that happens, when we do that, something happens that cannot happen any other way. And we may never agree politically, but we can love unconditionally because we gain a better understanding of each other. And even if we never understand each other, even if we never agree, if we carry one another's burdens, you know what we do? We do what John talked about last week, right? We fulfill the law of Christ. Let me say it a different way. You do not have to agree with me or even understand me to love me. And I do not have to agree with you or even understand you to love you. We can disagree politically. We can love unconditionally while we pray and work for unity. So let's do that. This is a unique opportunity. This is the opportunity of our lifetime. Not to be divided when the whole world is divided. Right? This is the opportunity of a lifetime to call people into a relationship with the king who turned everything upside down. See, if we can learn how to do this, we can make our workplaces better. We can make our schools better. We can make our streets better. And we make our nation better and our world better. And that is not hyperbole. Because it's happened before and it can happen again. Now I know the elections, the day after tomorrow, and I want to close with two very quick things. All right, first, if you think that one election result or another is going to hurt God or hurt his plan or help God or help his plan, then your view of politics is too large and your view of Christ is too small. When Nero was Caesar, Christ was still king. And more recently, Christ was king when Bill Clinton was in office, when George Bush was in office, when Barack Obama was in office, and when Donald Trump is in office. And Christ will still be the king on Wednesday, no matter what happens on Tuesday. Now Sunday, David's going to be back to wrap up this series. I don't want you to miss it. Between now and then, I have some homework for you. Over the next week, I want you to take note of every time that you were exposed to a political viewpoint that counters your own. And if what you discover is that the emotion you feel when exposed to that viewpoint is hatred, is anger, rage, any of those things, what I want is for you to pray that God would heal that in you. If you discover that, pray that God would heal that in you. Pray that God would teach you to love that person and see them at least potentially as a part of your tribe. Ask yourself, what would it take to reach that person with the good news? How could you bring them into this family? All right, guys, I want to close my time with a final benediction from Romans 15, and then David has some final business for us, all right? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Love you guys. See you next week.